Welcome to the first Intuition Podcast. On this episode, I talk about large professional written exams, sharing tips of how to structure and answer such questions, particularly relevant for anybody studying a case study, often included at the end of their professional qualification. I recorded the session in front of a live Zoom audience, and if you'd like to join a future show, you can register for one. There'll be a link in our show notes. Well, hello, everybody. Welcome to another edition of the first Intuition Student Forum and podcast. My name is Ben Bullman, and I am running this episode solo. Dave can't join me this evening. He is off doing a charity fun run with some of the colleagues and tutors who he works with at First Intuition in Chelmsford. So, guys, I hope the run has gone well when you are listening to this podcast release. Tonight is episode 98. We have got 97 previous episodes of the First Intuition podcast across a range of topics, diverse themes we've picked, study related, career related, well-being related. And I can't stress how not every episode will be relevant for everybody, but I think there is certainly something there in the back catalogue for everybody in individual episodes. So please go back and have a look at those. Please continue to share the links and continue to download. This evening, we've picked a topic. Now, it's themed case study, but I want to first of all say, if you are not sitting exams that include something called a case study, I still think the stuff that I'm going to talk through this evening will be relevant to you. So SEMA and ICAW students, you have got case study exams within the syllabus. But ACCA students, although they don't call it a case study, the strategic business leader exam and actually lots of the professional level of exams contain large scenarios and written questions. And even at AAT, particularly the level four synoptic has got themes that are very similar to a case study with a business and then scenario based written questions around it. I ran a previous episode of the podcast going all the way back to October 2020. So if you are searching through the back catalogue and if you Google the First Intuition podcast, you'll find that the website and you can go back over all previous episodes. If you're preparing for a case study listening to this, I would suggest you also go back and listen to that episode called Get on the Case from October 2020 where I talked in that one more about how to analyze the business and the organization that your scenario is based on. Tonight, I want to share my views on what makes a good case study answer. I have marked lots of mocks for various qualifications over the years, and I've seen good and I've seen bad scripts from students. And tonight I want to share with you, I think I've got it down to eight key elements or key things if you are critiquing your own work or you're planning your answers for a case study or a large scenario style professional question, things that I think you should be looking to include or considering. So let's get started. The first thing I wanted to mention, and this links very nicely with the previous episode of the podcast, which is now released. Dave ran a session last week on understanding the verbs within question requirements. And that's vitally important in a large case study style written question. The requirements are important for a few reasons. 
One, because clearly the structure of a marking guide or a marking key will link to what the examiner has actually asked students to do. So if you've missed out requirements, your marks are going to suffer. And in a case study, that can make the difference between passing and failing. So trying to answer every requirement that the examiners asked for is my first tip for success in a case study script. And adding to that, it gives your answers a really nice structure. What I encourage students to do is use the specific requirements as headings within their answer. You can then plan ideas and points around it, and it gives your answer a really clearly flowing and easy to read and mark presentation style. The requirements are quite diverse in case study. And that's why, again, sometimes having done lots of mocks, students maybe presume without specifically reading exactly what the examiners asked them for in this question. Have they asked for risks or benefits? Have they asked for financial implications or non-financial implications? Have they asked for operational issues or longer term strategic issues? And without that, your answer can go off in a slight direction that is moving it away from the mark scheme and the answer plan. And more importantly, the way that they can award marks for the points that you've raised. So number one, make sure you understand the requirements that have been asked for. Answer all of them as much as possible and use those to plan and structure your answer with headings. My second point professional business language now this is important not just in case studies but in all of the higher level and professional stage exams that you might sit in your studies you need to sound like a competent business professional and so the appropriate use of terminology is vital i can't go through an exhaustive list of things but some of the good things i've identified in recent scripts that i've been marking Talking about economies of scale, for example, hopefully a recognizable business term, but the fact that if you do things in a bigger volume, there should be cost savings because you get economies of scale. The more you do, the cheaper you can do it because you can spread overhead costs over a bigger number of products that you're producing. Talking about things like diversification is a nice phrase to have and making sure that you can understand that businesses need to think about diversifying to reduce risk and to increase their hopeful profit-making capabilities. The talk about working capital and headroom, how much working capital does the business need? What might whatever you're suggesting to comment on change the working capital structure? Will they have enough money left at the end of the week, at the end of the month, at the end of the year? Or do they need to consider additional sources of finance. Thinking about profitability and the impact on margins and bottom line profit. Now, that's not, as I said, an exhaustive list, but a good thing to have is a, or your own, um, almost list of business terms, key definitions, key things that you can then start trying to get into answers. Or as you're proofreading or reading back, thinking, could I actually use a more professional, recognized business term? So point number two is really beefing up your professional business language within your answers. 
My third point to success in these case study style or, or higher level written professional exams is illustrating your points with numbers. Too many students take a written exam literally and just write words and words and words. And in the world of accountancy, in the world of finance, numbers are something that you should be and are expected to be competent in using. In this style of exam, it's using them in the right place, in the right context. So putting in absolute numbers. What does this mean by way of additional sales or additional profit or cash requirements? Sophisticated answers can then start putting things in the context of percentages, thinking about the percentage something's increased or the percentage that something represents of something else. So this new project represents X percentage of their existing sales, for example. You can use that to then put it in the context of the impact on profit or the impact on cash flow. So my point number three is always think, could I pick a number from the scenario or could I do a quick, very simple calculation to get numbers to illustrate my points? And that merging of written sentences to include numbers is really important. Try and present them consistently. So I always like percentages to one decimal place and do that throughout. If you're doing dollars or pound amounts, depending on the exams that you're sitting, try and present those in a standard way throughout your answer. Consistent levels of rounding, for example. So number three, make sure that it's not just words. As much as possible, you've illustrated those words with some numbers to hopefully give the financial impact of what you are talking about. Point number four. Point number four is what we call qualitative statements. Again, in these kind of exams, too many students just literally state facts. They don't then express any view or any understanding behind them. So what we try and encourage and what markers are looking for to award extra marks are things that are referred to as qualitative statements, not just stating the fact, but giving some context and perspective to it. So this is where you can elaborate the words behind your points. The examples I'm thinking of, you should be able to identify whether something is significant or whether it is quite minor for the business. Is something good or bad? Is it expected or unexpected? They are what we call qualitative words that give another meaning really to your observations. Think about somebody reading your script or report who isn't as financially aware as you are. You really need to spell things out to them. And so using your ability to decide whether something is good or bad for the business is something they might not have the ability to comprehend. So you really need to emphasize that in your written answers. So go back and add in qualitative words to really express the, the logic behind, is this good, bad, expected, unexpected, significant or minor for the business? So number four, qualitative analysis. My point number five is what we call applying judgment. So this gives you a chance to now reflect on what you've just said. And it usually boils down to one of two things that you can then follow up your points with. Have you explained why something has happened? 
And this is where you can use the clues within the scenario. You can use your knowledge of the business that you are writing your answer about. Or if there's not an obvious one that is suggested to you in the information, give your own reasonable suggestion as to why something might have happened. Has there been a change in terms with customers and suppliers? Have there been a change in the underlying market that means things have become more or less popular, for example? But don't just state facts, then try and give the reason so there is some logic and you've used your business acumen, your business knowledge to explain why things are happening. The other way you can apply judgment is to think forward. So if you've stated something has already happened, the follow up could be the implication for the future. So what? Why would the business need to care about this? Is it a sign of things getting worse for the future? Is this something that they need to be really aware of because things might need to change going forward? Is there something that they need to be aware of because it's on the horizon? So applying judgment all about the why it's happened or from the forward looking perspective, the so what? What does this mean for the business going forward? So that was point number five. Point number six, a word I use a lot. If I've ever taught you in the classroom, I've probably used this word a number of times throughout the day. The word is skeptical. One of the things that they are looking for now in the modern professional exam environment is for students to challenge, to not just take the information they've been presented in the case study scenario or in the exam question scenario, at face value, but use your ability to be skeptical, to have an awareness of what numbers might look unexpected or unusual. Lots of marks available for challenging assumptions. Is this out of the context of what we would expect for this kind of business? Does it look wildly optimistic? Has it produced a profit that is unrealistic based on the historic trends that you may be aware of for the business in the question scenario? They like you to challenge the source of information. So where's the information come from within the question? Is there any risk of bias or any objectivity issues with the people that have produced the information or given you the numbers? This is your chance to apply a bit of your theory and maybe suggest some sensitivity analysis or even do some sensitivity analysis for yourself. Think, well, this is one way, but there might be another way I could calculate it to show you a potential worst case scenario. Think about things like break even points, some pretty basic financial concepts that can really add a level of skepticism to your answer. So be skeptical, challenge things. And don't just assume everything that you've been given is automatically correct. Think about things like estimates, judgments, and use your own financial awareness, your own business acumen to state this looks like it might be overly optimistic. Who's produced it? What's their reasons behind a particular spin on some numbers? So number six, be skeptical. My seventh point, and this features a lot is to do with ethics or more importantly these days business trust business probity some examiners call it the reasons why the business and the organization might need to just take a step back 
and think about the wider implications of something. These days, lots of the exams cover environmental aspects for the business or social aspects for the business and trying to get students to not just think about the financial context of something, but the wider ramifications for the business. Some good approaches to questions that you can maybe try to adapt and adopt here. Think about the key facts. A good skill in these kind of exams is being able to take what the examiner probably gives you in five or six paragraphs and sum it up in a couple of quick sentences. So what are the key facts around the environmental, the social, the ethical issues within the scenario? Think about the stakeholder groups that are involved. Who does this risk upsetting and what might be the wider impact of that for the business? Is this something that's going to be acceptable to the employees, to the customers, to the wider society that the business operates in and around the local community? Think about the reputational impact on the business. Reputation features a lot in these kind of exams. Is there anything here that could damage the reputation? What's the knock-on effects of that? Is there going to be some kind of damage to the brand? Is there going to be a longer-term impact of potential lost sales, lost customers, the ability to attract new staff members to join the business? You can talk about the financials, of course. Think about the financial implications of things that are illegal. Could be a fine, could be some kind of penalty. What's going to be the, the cost of those? Good answers, though, then go further. So they don't just weigh up what's happened. They then start thinking about some actions around it. And so within the ethical and business trust, try and then give some action points, some things that the business, the organization need to do. And I encourage students to think about those from a couple of time points. I would start with the short term actions. This is really damage limitation. So think about things. The business must do this as a matter of course. The priority is those kind of terms coming up to introduce your ideas. But what you're trying to do is suggest things that limit the damage now that try and nip things in the bud to stop things progressing and getting worse. So short term actions first. But you can usually get some additional marks for then thinking about some long term actions as well. The long term actions are things that will seek to prevent similar scenarios occurring in the future. So prevention by introducing new policies, new processes, not going to change what's already happened, but we've dealt with the short term implications and need for reaction to that. This is now the longer term, the future proof in the business can involve training of staff, education, making people more aware so it doesn't happen again. So my point number seven, all around ethics, business trust, it features in all of these exams. If you miss it, you're dropping marks. It's something that really is a key requirement these days in, in largely all of the professional exams and particularly the case studies. So think about the business, the trust issues, think about who it affects, think about the impact on the business, most notably any reputational damage. Then think about action points. What do you recommend the business does in the short term? What can they do in the long term to prevent and detect? 
And that really brings me on to my final point in good scripts. My final point is all around the conclusions and recommendations. So what you are building to in these kind of exams is some overall summing up at the end of the particular task or the end of the requirement. So a good skill to conclude. The key points that I've covered are X, Y, Z. So pick out the key facts and restate them. Sum it up. Don't be scared to make a decision. Too many students in their conclusion, in their summing up, sit on the fence. But what the examiners are really looking for now in these kind of exams is a student to say, I think the business should do it or not do it with a justification. So make sure that you have given that kind of definitive, this is what the business needs to do. Because quite often it asks you to evaluate, in which case they expect you to be able to draw that to a natural conclusion. Don't finish there though. Follow up with some additional recommendations. What are the next steps? Is there any additional information or work that the business can do? Do they need to investigate something further? What's the next thing they need to do to move towards something happening? Who do they need to speak to? Who do they need to involve to get things moving forward? So trying to finish your answers with some form of conclusion, summing up with a decision, and then some recommendation points at the end. The next stage in the process is, or I recommend the first thing the business now does is this, to get things moving forward. Lots there in those eight, but they are really key things that will feature in most marking guides for case studies or those professional style written scenario based exam questions. They're things that add a professional dimension to your answers. They broaden up your range of points. They give you structure and they really should mean that you are getting then the marks that your work deserves in those kind of exams. That was what I wanted to cover this evening. I hope people listening to the podcast have found that useful. Something to critique if you are doing a case study or you're doing one of the longer form written question style exams. Look at your answers. Look at how it's structured. Has it got that range? Can you go through those eight and try and make some modifications to improve your marks further? Thank you for downloading the podcast. Keep downloading, keep sharing the links with friends, with colleagues. We really do like to see the downloads. If possible, leave us a feedback. Myself and Dave love to hear that people have listened to them, even if it was an old episode that you've gone back to. Thank you very much. And I will speak to you next time. 